So, Nicolas Bornos of Link, and uh, I'd like to welcome you to another uh, very interesting panel in today's forum. The uh, energy transportation uh, in the Jones Act space is one of the most uh, uh, active uh, trades, and we are delighted to have with us uh, a, a top panel. Uh, I will let uh, Ben Nolan, uh, the head of maritime research at Stifel, introduce our esteemed panelists. And uh, I'd like to thank uh, Stifel for sponsoring the event and helping. And uh, Ben, the floor is over to you. And thank you to, to Sam, Greg, and, and Daniel. And thank you very much to all of you. Great. Well, uh, I we don't have very much time, and I don't want to take much. So um, why don't we do this? We'll go around the horn in each of you 30 seconds on, on your company, just so that uh, you can do a better job of explaining who you are than I can. So Sam, we'll start with you. Thanks, Ben. Uh, I'm Sam Norton. <clears throat> I'm the president and CEO of Overseas Shipholding Group. Uh, we're a New York Stock Exchange listed uh, tanker uh, owner operator, primarily uh, working in the Jones Act. We have uh, mostly tankers uh, trade in the Jones Act. We do have a couple of ships that trade uh, under U.S. flag overseas. Uh, and we have a couple of niche businesses, including uh, moving uh, Jones Act crude oil from Alaska, some lightering business in the Delaware Bay and uh, shuttle tankers that run uh, in the Gulf of Mexico off the F FPSO platforms there. So uh, prominently Jones Act, uh, all U.S. flag um, based in Tampa. Dan? Thanks, uh, Sam. Thanks, Ben. Uh, Dan Thorogood, uh, CEO and president of Seabulk. Uh, we own and operate U.S. flag tankers, uh, both uh, on time charter and in a contract of a freightment uh, business. Uh, we also have harbor tugs and we provide the third party vessel management. Greg? Good morning. Glad to join the panel. Uh, my name is Greg Binion. I'm executive chairman of OXO Marine. OXO is a private equity firm based in Grand Rapids, Michigan, that owns two Jones Act companies. One operates in the Great Lakes, Andre, moving asphalt, uh, uh, cement, and other construction materials uh, in the Great Lakes. And then MG Transport, which for 50 years has served the lower Mississippi River, predominantly moving petroleum coke from complex refiners in the region to export terminals. And Ben, back to you. All right, great. Well, so we'll start with the macro. Uh, it has been a rough couple of years um, in just about all of these segments that we're talking about here. Uh, it seems like oil demand is recovering. Um, uh, we uh, will talk about supply in a little bit, um, so I don't want to get sidetracked, but uh, have we have uh, we'll just go around the horn here. Have we reached the tipping point? Is is it all up from here, at least for a while? Or or are, are there more you know, uh, stumbling blocks along the way, do you think? We'll we'll go reverse order. We'll start with you, Greg. Your business is a little bit different than the other guys. Uh, how, how are you feeling about things? It is different, but we're we're keen observers of the space, and uh, you know, been in this business for a long time. First started riding towboats when I was 14 years old, and I guess my general comment is that this is a, a deeply cyclical market with capital intensive, uh, long term, long lived assets, and as a result of the combination of those, it's, it doesn't matter if it's the marine transportation space or other industries, is that there's typically periods of under and over investment, and when things get slow like they have been, typically there's periods of underinvestment which cause price appreciation, tightness in the marketplace, and then ultimately a response by owners to 
to add additional capacity, which then creates down cycle. So, you know, I, I think that uh, is, is it all up from here? My experience is that I wish I could say yes. Unfortunately, I think that, uh, that those of us who have been in the business a long time uh, have experienced cycles and, and ex expect to have further cycles in the future and really then construct our business such that we have flexibility during those cycles as it results to cost levers and flexibility uh, during, the, during the down cycles and the ability to add incremental capacity at, li at little cost and really get the operational uh, efficiency out of our business uh, during the up cycles. Um, I can, I guess, build off that a little bit. I'll focus on a subset of demand uh, that's critical to the Jones Act uh, tanker space, which is the Florida market. Uh, I'll leave uh, the other more difficult pieces for, for Sam. But um, the, the Florida market obviously had the headwinds you'd expect through the pandemic. Um, and uh, we have certainly seen uh, with the uh, indicators we we review, a uh, continuing uptick in demand, a very strong season. The, the driving season is, is during the cooler months uh, in Florida. And so we've seen demand uh, ramp up and, and stay up, uh, which, is, which is positive. Obviously, there's some uh, incremental factors, not just sort of a return to normality, but there is ongoing uh, migration uh, southwards uh, with uh, people more able to work remotely or looking for lower tax uh, homes uh, for the long term. Uh, we certainly see a tailwind uh, overall in terms of, you know, Florida activity and, uh, and related consumption of, of gasoline, jet and diesel. So I'll just try and uh, sort of jump on the macro picture there. I mean, just a quick picture. 2020 saw a tremendous demand destruction of transportation fuels, as you would expect. At what point transportation fuels uh, across the United States were down as much as 40%. Um, the, uh, the, the refining industry reacted to that, uh, but not uh, nearly quickly or uh, substantially enough. Uh, so you saw a tremendous build of inventories between the summer of 2020 and th 2021. Um, and we've really seen those inventories now being drawn down as demand has recovered across 2021 uh, to where, uh, kind of hit your point, Ben, uh, inventories are at or below their five-year averages. Uh, demand levels in gasoline are back up uh, to pre-2000 uh, or 2019 levels, pre-COVID levels. Uh, diesel has been healthy all along, and really the only missing ingredient has been jet fuel. Uh, and we're pretty optimistic that jet fuel is also coming back pretty strong. Uh, the jet fuel that's missing is kind of in the international jet travel. Uh, and with the retreat of Omicron, and looks like Europe and, and other places uh, are opening up, um, you know, most of the stuff that we look at sees jet fuel demand uh, continue to rise across the second and third quarter. Uh, so that's all very supportive, uh, low inventory levels, increased demand, uh, uh, refining, uh, refineries starting to push up their uh, uh, utilization rates up into the upper 80s, low 90s. Uh, we think that sets up for uh, a pretty healthy market across the next couple of quarters. And I would agree with Greg, uh, it, it's to your dis, uh, <laughs> your disadvantage to try and uh, predict that things only go in one direction because, you know, stuff happens, uh, you know, you get pandemics, wars, changes of law, all these things happen. Um, and I agree with Greg that the, you know, the singular uh, skill set that we all try and apply is, uh, is, is our ability to adapt to changing circumstances and being able to 
uh, try and, uh, you know, to reorganize our assets, reorganize our approach to how we use those assets based on the circumstances as they come. Um, I do think this year looks pretty positive, uh, but uh, all up forever, that would be uh, that would be unusual. Then you meet. Yeah, there it was. I, I I had said, and it was very very clever of me. That impossible was probably the word that uh, you were looking for there. But <laughs> I, I uh, stay. Let's stay on demand for a second, though, because uh, yeah, consumption's rising certainly, um, and hopefully jet fuel, um, domestic jet fuel's pretty good. But you know, international as it picks up uh, should should help out as well. Uh, that said, the landscape has changed a bit. Um, refineries have closed in some areas or are changing their feedstock mixes in certain areas. Consumption patterns are changing in, in parts of the, in parts of the country. Um, uh, and there's a lot to unravel there. Um, and, and, and maybe some of the things that we can hit on. And if I miss any, then we'll, you know, you please feel free to bring them up, but things like, um, renewable diesel. Right. That is a big thing in parts of the country and not so much in other parts. Uh, you, you've had, uh, again, refinery closures in various spots, the West Coast, the East Coast, even to some extent in the Gulf Coast. How does all of that play in, you know, and, and where does the international market um, interact with all of that? Uh, you know, even still, you, you, you look at uh, you know, all of the other green initiatives. I mean, these things seems like right now are not uh, doing too much to take underlying demand, but ultimately, you know, we'll see, right? So there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that are different than they were probably even just two years ago. How, from a demand perspective, how does that um, play itself out for you guys, do you think? Maybe I can, I can jump in on that if, if, if it's appropriate. Um, the, uh, the, the, the single largest shift in the kind of demand uh, for the tanker, the deep, the blue water tanker sector that we've seen in the last year or two, uh, has been the emergence of uh, renewable diesel trade from the Gulf Coast uh, refineries that are now engaged in renewable diesel production, uh, with the primary market being California, where the low carbon fuel credits uh, offer incentives for that diesel to be consumed there. And California, of course, is a large market. Uh, so, um, you know, that was, you know, th that was never a market in the past to so see a, uh, a Jones Act vessel go from the Gulf uh, Coast to the, to the West Coast was usually a positioning voyage. Uh, if you were going out to try and take care of the West Coast uh, distribution market, uh, or occasionally there might be an arbitrage that would open that up, but it really, it really wasn't a, a, a constant move that we would see. Uh, renewable diesel has changed that. Um, there are, to my knowledge, at least three uh, full-time Jones Act tankers that are now uh, on longer-term longer charters moving renewable diesel from the Mississippi Delta uh, to California, and um, production of that renewable diesel uh, is slated uh, based on committed expansion projects over the next two years to increase um, uh, still further uh, and, uh, and probably getting to... Uh, a level of uh, 100 to 120,000 barrels per day of renewable diesel coming out of the Gulf Coast uh, by the end of 2024. Uh, that's all new demand for Jones Act. And as, as long as the California is the primary market and still has that low uh, carbon fuel credits, um, that looks really interesting to us. Uh, and uh, we see that as, as a strong uh, tailwind for supporting 
what we think in any case is going to be uh, a tightening market for the Jones Act uh, in its conventional trades, uh, moving product uh, across the Gulf of Mexico into pre predominantly Florida, as Dan said. Uh, but also there's a distribution trade up and down the West Coast that takes uh, ATVs and um, and, uh, and, and Jones Act tankers to, to uh, connect the refining centers on the West Coast with the consumption centers. So that market ha had, has been hurt by COVID. It seems to be recovering and getting healthy again. And uh, as we move forward, layering on top of that, um, new demand for renewable diesel uh, is something that we find very encouraging. Yeah, and I'll just add to Sam's comments on the East Coast. I mean, going into COVID, uh, you had uh, the Philadelphia Energy Solutions refinery shutting down, um, but that obviously was matched with a fall off in demand. And, and you're now seeing that Northeast demand component come back and uh, starting to see um, less traditional uh, moves that are indeed longer haul for a blue water vessel, uh, tanker, or, or large ATB from the Gulf up to the Northeast. Uh, and that bodes well for ton miles and, and, and thus sort of overall demand. And hopefully there's a strong season ahead of us and uh, people are out and about in, in the New England, um, north of sort of north of the Carolinas um, session. And that, that, that would be very positive for the trade lane. And Greg, any, any uh, Great Lakes or, uh, or Brownwater dynamics that you think are a little different than maybe they used to be? Well, I think, you know, clearly in, a, in an environment of rising energy prices, the component of delivered cost to the customer that makes up the freight piece shrinks on a percentage basis as fuel prices go up. So what does that mean for us as transporters? It means that, that at the margin, it's, uh, there, there's, there's more potential for longer trips that, uh, that otherwise wouldn't be there because the value of the cargo compels it to be so. And sometimes it's driven by difference in sulfur specs or, you know, in the case you were talking about taking Jones Act vessels uh, uh, to the West Coast for that trade, th those kinds of things, whether it's, whether it's market-based or whether it's uh, policy-based, and we're seeing a little bit of both of those things happening at the same time, I think it will compel longer trips, which consumes more equipment days, which ultimately is really good for the space. And this is maybe an unfair question because we we haven't talked about it in advance and gosh, who knows, but it's so topical that I can't help myself. If, um, you know, crazy stuff's going on in Russia, you guys have any prognostications as to what that might mean, if anything, for some of the domestic markets here? I can, you know. Go ahead. Sam. You want me to jump in on that, Dan? I'm, I'm happy to punt to you. Brave enough to, to take it. I'll, I'll just say one, one thing quickly, which is I think even before what we're seeing unfold in the last 24 hours, uh, you had uh, a fairly significant energy squeeze in, in Western Europe. And so less uh, gasoline <clears throat> moving from the typical Rotterdam refineries into, the, into New York Harbor. Uh, and so that obviously needed to be replaced. And, and the natural way to replace that supply uh, was actually from uh, U.S. refineries, which, which remain world class. And, and obviously a Jones Act tanker or, or large ATB is the way to get that done. Uh, so I think even before <coughs> what's sadly uh, unfolding in front of us today uh, happened, uh, you already saw a squeeze where some of the 
supply channels were, were, were constrained. I assume they'll become further constrained at this point. Because also, it's also hard to, to, you know, my experience when there have been sort of hostilities around the world in the last 20 or 30 years, the immediate reaction is oil price goes up very sharply. And then typically you see as things sort of settle out, the, the market suggests and the oil price comes back down. Uh, I'm not saying that that's going to happen this time. I agree with Dan's uh, comments that energy generally around the world and particularly in Europe has been tight. Um, and that alters uh, the refining economics or the competitive economics of European refineries uh, versus the United States in a very favorable way for the United States. Uh, and you're also seeing in, in the crude oil markets today, uh, the Brent WTI spread is widened out. It was out like seven bucks this morning. Um, that changes decisions uh, for the refineries on and, and the, the ones that are remaining, Monroe and PBF on the on the go on the on the east coast up in uh, up in Delaware Bay, uh, they're starting to look around to, to bring some crude oil domestically, uh, either as a hedge against the possibility that Russian crude is not going to be available, or just simply because the economics are, you know, on the on the forward curve, they're looking pretty compelling. Uh, even you know, moving you know to Dan's point, moving long haul crude uh, up to long haul for the Jones Act up to Delaware Bay. Um, it it has for the last two years not been competitive and as of this morning it looks pretty competitive uh and so we may see some of that um um you know i think you know i looked at this morning because i was just curious uh russian uh, energy imports into the united states that's crude and products combined uh have been on a on a steady rise for the last uh, five six years and hit a peak of as much as 25 million barrels a month i think 26 million barrels a month in may uh, that's come off a bit since then, but that's still significant quantities of energy that's coming from Russia uh, into the United States. I think a lot of that is crude oil going into the East Coast refineries. Uh, you know, what we've read, and I, and I saw an article in Reuters this morning, uh, the sense of sanctions being applied to energy is that that's not going to be high on the list because of the disruptive uh, potential that uh, blocking energy would have uh, on the global economy. Uh, but that's still a lot of product and, and crude oil that's coming out of Russia that's coming in the United States that uh, would create disruption if it was interrupted. Um, so it's something that certainly we're watching very carefully and, and indications today are, uh, uh, so are a lot of other people, they're starting to, to, to take decisions and make moves to protect themselves against the potential for that being disrupted. Yeah, and, and I would agree with with all those comments. The uh... I think the fact of the matter is that regardless of the cause of the disruption is that it causes people to focus on security of, uh, in this case, energy security. And I think as a nation, we're, we, we may have lost focus of, over that over the last couple of years, and maybe that's starting to come back into the bullseye. And then, uh, and then also disruptive forces, whether caused by Mother Nature or Vladimir Putin, uh, they, they tend to lengthen supply chains again, causing more uh, unit days to be consumed and, and generally, you know, constructive for our space. Right. Um, so may, maybe there is a correlation here. Um, uh, I know, Sam, you guys are, are, it's not Jones Act, but it is U.S. flag. And many people, many people don't know the difference. Um, uh, and I think even, Dan, you guys do some MSP uh stuff um can me since this is a jones act and u.s flag panel in fact i i can't help myself i saw yesterday or the day before there was a trade winds article where it said it was talking about the jones act and it showed it 
a internationally owned U.S. flagged asset. And I was like, boy, it's just you, even the experts don't get it. But um, nonetheless, uh, can we talk just for a little bit about sort of where, where you're seeing the uh, uh, the U.S. flag tanker business shaping out, and maybe if there are any implications about all of this geopolitical craziness on uh, on, on that part of the market. Um, you know, Dan, why not take uh, tankers? You can take other non-tankers because uh, you're involved in both sectors. But uh, there's a really important development on the tanker side uh, when it comes to internationally trading U.S. flag vessels. Again, the singular difference is uh, internationally trading U.S. flag vessels do not have to be constructed in the United States, uh, but they're still manned and owned by U.S. persons. Uh, at least uh, um, the manning is has to be uh, U.S. Uh, manning. Uh, the ownership can can be through U.S. subsidiaries of foreign companies. Uh, so that's 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 the way that they're structured. Uh, there are today uh, roughly. I think the number is 87 or so uh, international trading U.S. flag vessels. Uh, the vast majority of those are in the um, maritime security program, which Dan can talk a little bit more about. Um, and then there are uh, the, ba the balance of them are really on time charter, either to the military sealift command or to other government agencies to, to cover uh, government uh, uh, needs in, in international transport. Uh, in that mix today, uh, there's legislation that has been uh, that's been passed and, uh, and uh, funding has been approved to expand the maritime security program to include uh, kind of a, a division of the maritime security program, which is called the tanker security program, um, uh, with the intent to expand uh, the U.S. flag international trading tanker fleet by uh, initially 10 vessels and, and potentially more going into the future. Uh, there is a, a, a stipend that's provided to help uh, offset some of the higher costs of running an international uh, U.S. flag vessel internationally, uh, and there is also access to uh, government-directed cargos, uh, which help to uh, to make the economic case for doing that. Um, uh, and the principal driver behind all of this is uh, a, a shifting in military strategy uh, at the Defense Department that understands today. Uh, that logistics uh, are probably a bigger part of the equation than they were, say, 10 or 20 years ago. I think that the military planning in the, in, the, in the 1990s was there was such overwhelming superiority of force in the United States that any uh, conceived uh, conflict outside of the United States would be over and done with uh, so quickly that logistics really didn't come into the, into the equation. Uh, I think that that uh, view has shifted um, and that uh, logistics now becomes an important part of uh, trying to imagine an extended uh, theater of operations that would be uh, far afield from the United States. And that has, uh, that has woken up uh, some people and many people, the majority, uh, to the fact that um, having access to dedicated U.S. flag vessels to be able to support military operations uh, is probably a good idea. So we see that as uh, becoming a reality probably this year. Uh, and uh, and that's uh, that's going to help expand the U.S. flag tanker fleet, which is a growth area. Uh, you know, talking about growth area in the Jones Act is something that is uh, there's not a lot there. So this is this is something we think is uh, very encouraging. Um, and it and it'll help and you know it fits into the sort of made in the USA and U.S. you know U.S. Uh, skill sets developing and maintaining the critical skill sets that we think are, are important in this industry. So um, that's how we see it from the tanker side. Dan, on the on the on the non-tanker stuff, you guys are very active there. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just I'll keep it short because we've we've got a, only a little bit of time less left, and it's not 
a core part of my daily activity, but I think it's a very clever public-private partnership, the MSP program. It, it is uh, an efficient way for the U.S. Um, Defense Department to have access to uh, both the hard assets and the soft skills, the crews, um, to sustain projecting power over the horizon. And I think, you know, uh, both looking to the Pacific and maybe less predictably, but more immediately uh, to Eastern Europe, um, sustaining these programs and building on them as they are, as, as, as Sam just noted with the tanker security program, I think there's a tailwind there. They, they are very efficient programs and I, I would expect to see uh, continuing support and indeed growth uh, in that space uh, for, for, for over the next several years. Great. So since we are running a little low on time, uh, first of all, let me say, if anybody does have any questions, you know how it works, you can submit it and I'll try to work it in. But um, the now we can we can finally get to the supply side a little bit. And I'm going to start with you, Greg, uh, because, uh, you know, in general, we all well, probably everybody watching this knows that there's not been much ordering of uh, of anything really Jones Act lately. Um, but one of the challenges, I think, is that uh, the, the reason that's the case is returns have not been good. Um, and that's been exacerbated by the fact that the government has just been piling on regulations one after the other. And it's happened for a while, but that could be anything from ballast water to subchapter M to tier four engines on towboats. And nobody's being compensated for this extraordinary level of sort of extra expense. You, you know, you guys are private equity backed company. Uh, how do you think about going out and saying, all right, well, you know, we haven't made, we haven't made good returns generally. The industry hasn't made good returns on a while, for a while and we're being expected to cover all this cost and not being compensated for it. Why should we keep spending money on this business? Well, that's a great question, and uh, I'm going to I'm going to take a little bit of a dry cargo slant here, uh, given our pet coke exposure. And uh, we have actually invested uh, in renewing about a third of our 300 barge fleet at MG over the last three years. And so we, you know, because this is a capital intensive business, we like to invest counter cyclically and try to buy things when they're less expensive. And at, so our, our ability to do that enables us to deliver on our customers' expectations to put young barges in front of their dock and uh, have barges that are frankly more efficient. So we're able to build slightly larger barges, 14 versus 13 foot hulls. And, uh, and, and, and basically we have barges now where seven can do the work of eight older barges. So they're inherently more efficient. They, they, they take less horsepower to move around, less labor content. Uh, less emissions as a result of that, and less uh, less interaction from our customers to load them. So uh, that that's been that's been a way that we address uh, the reinvestment piece at uh, at MG. Now at Andrew, it's really kind of the same the the liquid conundrum that you mentioned is, which is you know it's 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 based on yes, it's in, it's increasing costs and it's trying to struggle to recapture that that capital that you have to apply to that whether it's on existing assets and modernizing them or, or investing in, in brand new assets, which I've heard have gone up in the liquid space about 30% over the last three years as well, partly due to steel, partly due to steel, but partly due to the factors that you just mentioned. So in, in this environment where there's, 
you know, there's 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 questions as at the margin in terms of sustainability of some refineries uh, making a long term investment with with a customer who may not be willing or able to make a similar long term investment in terms of a contract to support that asset is, is a real challenge. Uh, ultimately, you know, supply and demand will will cure that and uh, capitalism works and, and it will it will resolve itself, as I mentioned earlier. But for now, it's certainly a conundrum. Yeah, I think uh, I'll add, add on to that from the from the larger tanker perspective and larger ATB perspective. I think Ben, you know that the building capacity in the United States is pretty uh, is pretty constrained. Um, the two yards that can build tankers right now are quite filled uh, with uh, government contracts. Uh, NASCO is building uh, oilers for the Navy, and uh, and uh, Philly Shipyard is building. Um, uh, training ships for the for the uh, maritime academies, uh, and as well recently, uh, I think got a contract to uh, build some specialized equipment for the uh, you know emerging offshore wind industry, uh, and that's going to be a factor going forward. The shipyards that are in the United States are going you know wind is going to get a lot of wind behind it. I think. <laughs> and, uh, sorry for the pun, but <clears throat> uh, so that's going to make access to uh, shipyards uh, going forward in terms of building new capacity. Uh, it's going to make, make that challenging. So our view is uh, existing capacity is is going to have to uh, work for uh, a long time. Uh, I think uh, the tanker fleet, uh, many people think the tanker fleet in the Jones Act is quite old. It's not. It's quite young. Uh, the vast majority of ships have been built within the last 10 years, and um, they, have a, they have a pretty good long life uh, ahead of them. Uh, so I think a lot of the work is going to be done uh, in I hope in partnership with our charters or the you know the the refineries or the, the distributors that uh, that Greg referred to um, in terms of trying to find creative solutions to make a difference in whether it's in emissions or or other regulatory uh, um, hurdles that are that are that we're going to have to cross in the coming years um, you know the the holy grail right now in terms of the, the conversation that's going on there is that because the major companies are going to be uh, held to not only scope one, but scope two and scope three emission standards, uh, that that scope two emission standard is going to mean that whatever the owner's emissions are going to have to be owned by the charters as well. Uh, so they're not going to be able to necessarily um, just put it on our plate as our problem, our problem alone. Um, it would be nice if it worked that way. Uh, it hasn't always uh, worked that way in the past. Um, but certainly the conversations are going on right now. Uh, I would say there is more open discussion uh, with our charters and recognizing that this is uh, a problem that needs to be addressed jointly. Uh, and, uh, and I'm hopeful that, that that will lead to some good solutions. Um, but it is, uh, it is more likely, in my opinion, to be in the form of retrofitting and or modifying existing equipment in the short run, short run, let's call it the next five to 10 years. While the international market, where there's so many other ships and so many other uh, solutions that are being provided, uh, will probably go through uh, trying to figure out what's the what's the best solution to pr particularly propulsive power that will result in uh, uh, reduced emissions and trying to get to that net zero uh, goal that is aspir aspirational around the glo of the globe. Uh, I think that the U.S. market is going to take a little bit of a backseat and watch how that problem is resolved internationally before investing. Uh, in new equipment, and and in the meantime, working around the edges to try and get incremental improvement. I, I guess just to f finish off some thoughts, I, I'm reminded of a comment uh, Charles Fabricant uh, made 
fairly frequently, which is when you're shaving in the morning as a ship owner, you're looking at the enemy, which is uh, the, uh, the, the, the issue that we all see rates go up and, and run to the shipyard. I think in the Jones Act, putting capacity of shipyards aside for a minute, because you can always build an ATB somewhere. Uh, yes. Just keep that in mind. There's actually a lot of discipline on the ownership side. Uh, so maybe we're, we're less of the enemy than we used to be. Uh, and I think that's a, a, an important point when you think through um, uh, controlling supply in this market. So uh, another, again, maybe addressing the news article that was out the other day, it, it sort of blamed the, uh, the Jones Act for being uh, maybe not too environmentally friendly. And, and uh, Sam, you mentioned the assets are not as old as many people think, but uh, but generally speaking, because of the high cost of equipment, people like to keep them around longer, and that means they're less efficient from a, in this case, a carbon perspective. Uh, I don't know. Are, are, do you, do you, uh, you buy into that, or do you think that's a, not, in fact, the way that things really are? Well, again, we'll start with Greg. I, we'll we'll uh, go in, in reverse. Counterclockwise. Greg. Right, counterclockwise. I don't know, Greg, do you you, uh, you think that the U.S. is sort of needlessly behind the curve from an environmental standpoint? No, I don't think we're needlessly behind the curve from an environmental standpoint. I think, you know, the U.S. benefits from its natural geography of having 12,000 miles of navigable waterways to connect the breadbasket of, uh, of the U.S. to international markets and, and conversely, you know, flow of hydrocarbons in the form of intermediates to you know, the great manufacturing that lies along the Ohio River and other great rivers. So, you know, I think the U.S. has taken full advantage of the natural benefit it has by virtue of these waterways uh, along with, uh, you know, the ports and uh, infrastructure that has been built over the, the last 80 to 100 years to its maximum benefit. And I think it's, it does as well to to remember that maritime transportation is not only the most efficient in terms of tons moved per gallon of fuel, but also the best in terms of emissions, uh, the safest mode of, of surface transportation, and and frankly has flexibility that is, you know, ha is unparalleled. I mean, you, you don't get that through a pipeline, or uh, or you know, it's very, it's just challenging to uh, to to move, you know, have the flexibility of of railroad tracks the way that uh, moving the way that uh, that maritime is so it's inherently better than than other modes and uh, you know I think the challenge for all of this is to try to really understand I think Dave, Daniel mentioned this earlier is to is to avoid false starts around what the next fuel is going to be that ultimately is going to be sustainable and supported by by engine manufacturers and fuel distributors and uh, you know will achieve economies of scale and until we get there I think it's incumbent on all of us who operate to do the best job we can to operate with the minimal environmental footprint um, but uh, but maintain the, the safety and security that, that the country and our customers have enjoyed for decades. So just to follow on from Greg, I guess, then uh, if I may, I think he covers it really, really well. A couple of things that come to my mind when you talk about uh, is the US behind uh, on uh, low emission solutions, um, 
you, you got to think fairly carefully about it. I think uh, some of the earliest LNG-powered container ships uh, were U.S. Jones Act vessels built in the last several years, uh, so clearly a leader on that front. And, and a lot of the, the Jones Act tankers that came out in the last decade are uh, eco ships, and probably on a percentage of fleet basis, we have more eco tonnage in the Jones Act than, than internationally. Uh, that may change over time, but today we're probably ahead. I, I, the fundamental point I'll, I'll leave you with is um, all of our trades are short haul and uh, in comparison to the international trade. So uh, Greg's point on the, the gallons consumed per delivered barrel, we're the leader. Uh, if you're moving gasoline uh, from the Gulf Coast into uh, South Florida uh, or even further north and you're competing with anything across the Atlantic, you're, you're going to burn 60% less fuel delivering that barrel. That's, that's a big ESG component. Uh, so we're, we're well positioned uh, for those sorts of uh, solutions. And, and I would add to that, if you look, look at Florida, I think that it's all that uh, Dan and, and Greg have covered it. Uh, but the only real alternative to moving, you know, Florida has a huge uh, consumption base for fuel. It's about 750,000 barrels per day of transportation fuel. It has no refineries and it has no pipelines that serve it. Um, so what's the alternative uh, to getting, you know, fuel into Florida? Uh, it, it, the best, most ecologically friendly way to do that is short haul uh, on, on the Jones Act. Um, as Dan said, the, the, the carbon, the, the raw carbon emissions per barrel delivered are always going to be less um, when measured by, uh, by the Jones Act vessels. Short haul is the best way. Short haul is the best way to reduce carbon emissions. That's that's the that's the that's the punch. Right. Um, I, I I am not sure whether we're out of time yet or not. Uh, maybe somebody can send me a message. But I think you have three minutes. Three minutes. Okay. There we go. Good. That's perfect because the my last question uh, I've been waiting on, um, and it it is on on this panel we have one public company. Uh, we have one formerly public company, but a year ago at this time, and one private company, private equity-backed company. Uh, this is a not a this is not a major you know major market, right? Let's talk through a second. Why does it make sense to be public or private? And do you think that the industry is trending one way or the other? Whoever wants to take a stab at that. <laughs> Well, Dan, you have both sides of the perspective. I think you're the one that goes first. Uh, you know, I think if you look at the some of the in the Jones Act trades, there's been a lot of cycles which have really, at least on the the bigger players in in the tanker side, where there's a lot of capital at risk. You've seen cycles that have taken us through bankruptcies a number of times. So, so maybe maybe the private sector can do a better job on the, on the long term. It, it depends who the private sponsor is, of course. Uh, not all private sponsors are long-term. So uh, I'll leave it there. And, and I would just add that, um, I mean, both ownership structures have their puts and takes. But uh, at, at the end of the day, my take is that the, the type of shareholder and who the shareholders are and having alignment around the vision and the, uh, the, the long-term uh, commitment to the company uh, is is really key, and having the support from the shareholder base is uh, is I think a, a a premier part of that equation going forward. 
And I guess that's left to me to, to sort of put the cherry on, on top of the uh, Sunday. Um, you know, I, I agree with Greg, but both, both forums have their advantages and disadvantages. I would comment one of the problems that we face uh, in uh, existing in the public markets is there's very little, uh, there, there are very few comps that are, are accurate comps. Uh, and that gives investors uh, pause from time to time because uh, we, we speak to investors and we give them our vision of what we think the markets look like. Um, you know, what we, you know, rates, cost structures, these sorts of things, the economics that drive our business. And they want to go look at other companies and say, well, how do you compare against somebody that's in the same business? And that information is, uh, is generally not available because there are no, where there are very, very few companies that are directly involved in the same businesses that we're in. So that's a challenge to being public, uh, being able to have that sort of comparable, uh, you know, transparency to be able to, to understand one company, whether they're better than another, um, it would be nice if there were more public companies uh, in the tanker space, uh, but the reality is they're not today. That is the reality. Um, well, Nicholas, uh, I, we're out of time. And I, I always know when you pop onto my screen that I'm done, but uh, I do want to say thanks for putting this on. I know it's the, it's the first time, but I think that this is a really big market that people don't know anything about and having events like this really do help. If, if for no one else, they help me uh, to be better educated on how things are going. So I appreciate you, you doing it and inviting me to, to, to take part. Well, I would like to reciprocate the thanks to you, Ben, and also to, uh, to everybody, to, to Sam, Daniel, and Greg, and to everybody, really. I, I'm uh, very happy that we have put together, I think, an A-plus agenda in terms of topics and panelists, and uh, this panel, of course, is one of the very top ones. So we hope to repeat it. And... Uh, Thank you very much for sharing your uh, very valuable uh, insight. Thank you. Thanks. Nice to see you all.